Hey guys. Good morning. If you want to open up your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. First uh, Timothy 4. We're going to have to be finishing off the chapter this morning. And we'll see what God has in store for us. It's really warm in here today. I don't like the warm weather. I'm not suited for a warm climate. I actually live in like Scandinavia. Where it's a little cooler than Ireland. But we shouldn't complain. I might not be here for long. Cool. First Timothy chapter 4. So you probably noticed with this book, there's kind of two real major themes that um, come up to us time and time again in Timothy, Paul's letter to Timothy. And that is the idea of doctrine and life. Doctrine and life. Paul constantly, time and time again in this book, makes reference to Timothy, how he should live and also what he believes. Because those two things as Christians are fundamental. You know, your doctrine, what you believe, will determine how you live your life. And likewise, the way you live your life determines and displays what you truly believe. You know, how you, what you believe about Jesus, what you believe about the resurrection, what you believe about eternal life and the end times and salvation will determine how you live your life. You know, if you honestly don't believe, say, for instance, in the idea of hell, you're not going to preach the gospel because you don't really think it's real and that people aren't going to suffer for sin. Likewise, if you believe that Jesus is coming back any minute, you know, with the rapture, that's going to spur you on to share the gospel as much as you can because you truly believe this is going to happen. So because of what you believe, X, Y, and Z will be the way of your life. And so Timothy is constantly reminded and encouraged by Paul in this book to watch his doctrine and to watch his life. Now, as we mentioned, as we learned last week in our text, Tyrone was sharing about how these false teachers were coming into the church and imposing doctrine on the Christians that was contrary to the gospel, which would, as a result, affect the way they live their life. And ultimately, what would happen is they'd be led away from the truth of the gospel, which is salvation through Christ alone, to you know, determining that if you have to be a Christian, well, you can't marry, or you can't eat certain foods, or you have to live X, Y, and Z. And so Paul, in writing to Timothy, writes out a concern to have him teach the truth because of the fact that the truth matters, and the truth will determine how you live your life. And along with that, along with proclaiming the truth, Paul wants Timothy to live out that truth. You know, an effective witness to the gospel is often living and being a doer of the word, not just a hearer of the word. And so Timothy is encouraged by Paul to do that this morning. So we're looking at verses 6 to 16 of chapter 4. And we'll we'll read it together and see what the word of God has to say. 1 Timothy 4, verse 6, it says, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent city myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which is given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. 
Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, Lord. God, thank you that you are faithful, Lord, to speak to us through God and Lord. What a noble task and desire we see in our text, God, to be called a good servant of Christ Jesus. To be someone who is faithful to you, Lord, until the end. And God, we recognize, God, we can't do a single thing, Lord, in this book without your help. We can't live a godly life without you, Jesus. So, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would just meet us here now, that you would be the one who builds us up. You would be the one who changes us. You would be the one who conforms us into the image of Christ. Holy Spirit, I pray you would speak through me. God, that your word, my words would be yours and not my own, Father. I pray that for each person here, that have eyes to see and ears to hear what you are speaking, Lord. Not what I'm speaking, God, but what you speak, Lord. So God, move amongst your people this morning, God. Lord, change lives, change hearts, bring salvation, God, and bring glory to your great name, Father. So God, we just commend this morning to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we'll start with verse 6. Paul says to Timothy, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. So again, in the beginning in our text this morning, Paul tells Timothy that if he puts these things before the brothers, he will be a good servant to Jesus. So I guess the first thing we ask is, what are these good things that Paul is talking about? And just a quick reminder of what we learned last week. These things that Timothy is to bring before the brothers are the things we learned about last week in the verse before. Again, you remember with Tyrone's teaching in verse 1 to 5, again, that it says that the Spirit says that in the later times, you know, false doctrines will creep into the church. That teachers, men and women, you know, whether for fame or money or power, selfish ambition, demonic influence, would steer people, Christians, away from the truth of the gospel and turn them instead towards the doctrine of demons, it said. Towards anything else that is not Christ. And these false teachers told the church in Ephesus that to be saved, as we mentioned earlier, it wasn't enough to believe in Jesus. You know, it wasn't enough that you had to just trust him. You had to live a certain way. You had to work for it, in other words. You had to earn your salvation. Remember, they were teaching to be a Christian, a true Christian. You had to abstain from marriage. You had to restrict your diet and couldn't eat certain foods, whether that was, you know, the Jewish dietary laws or something completely different. It doesn't save. Again, salvation, through their teaching, was conditional upon your performance. That stands in stark contrast to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, this false gospel that they're teaching was a life of restriction. It was a life of uncertainty. And ultimately, it's a life of self-exaltation. Because the idea that you can somehow save yourself from your sin is the most exalting thing for yourself that you can ever conceive. And it's the greatest lie ever told. You know, it's the greatest lie we're told because it leads people away from the truth of God to the, to the lies of the enemy. It leads people away from the actual good news, the actual gospel. You know, again, the gospel tells you that you cannot save yourself, that you have sinned, that you have fallen short of the glory of God, that the wages of your sin is death, and that the free, the free is, and you can't work for it, the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. All you have to do with the gospel is believe it and receive it. That's all the gospel is, believing 
and the work of Christ. It isn't about restriction, and it's about the greatest freedom you can ever have. You know, freedom from sin, freedom from the law, freedom to know and enjoy God in a way that we've never experienced before. To receive all that he has for us with thanksgiving, as it says in verse 4. And so Timothy is to teach these things to the church. Again, that the gospel is the free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. And Paul says, if Timothy does this, he will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Because the church will be trained in the words of faith and the good doctrine he follows. I love that. I think that's a noble calling. You know, we're all called to be servants of Jesus. Every single one of us. There's no exception. But to be called a good servant of Christ Jesus... Like, I want to hear those words when I walk into heaven. Well done, good and faithful servant. I want that for you. I want you to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant from Jesus. That should be our driving force behind our life. You know, to reach the end and know that we have pleased God. That we have made him happy. That we have made him smile. That we have made him be glorified. Again, if Timothy was faithful in teaching the word of God, it would lead to the church being trained up, Paul says. They would know the words of God and they would know sound doctrine. In other words, it would teach them to worship God because, you know, they would be devoted to the word of God and it would teach them how they are to live their life, their doctrine. Again, doctrine and life go hand in hand. So teaching God's word, it should have two effects on every person who hears it and every person who teaches it. It should inspire worship towards Jesus and it should show Jesus is so beautiful that you want to be like him. And that's the point of gathering here this morning. It's not that we feel good about ourselves or, you know, it's not a social club. It's about Jesus. It's about seeing him for who he really is and living like him because of who he is. That's our goal, to be Christ-like. To be Christ-like. And these truths, it's not just for the hearers. You know, it's not just for the church of Ephesus, it's for Timothy as well. You know, Paul says that the church would follow the same training in the word and the same doctrine that Timothy himself had followed. You know, Timothy could only teach others because he had been taught himself. He could only lead because he was being leader. He was being, he was being a follower, rather. You know, Timothy followed Paul, and ultimately Timothy followed Jesus. You know, we need to know Christ. We need to know Christ before we can ever, ever dream of talking about him or preaching him to people. You know, if you want to faithfully preach the word of God, you need to know Jesus because you want people to know Jesus and not just know about Jesus. A lot of people who think they know about Jesus. But there's a great distinction between knowing him and knowing about him. You know, do you know Jesus or do you just know about Jesus? That was Timothy's task, to make people know Jesus Christ. And so with that, Paul says in verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverence that he myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. And so what Paul does here in verse 7, he moves away from this idea of nourishment. Because verses 1 to 5 is all about the dietary restrictions. And what we see, he brings up this metaphor of an athlete. He tells Timothy not to have anything to do with irreverent city myths, but rather to train himself for godliness. And training is something that Timothy would have been well aware of. You know, um, along with being a young man who hopefully needed the benefit of exercise because in the first century, you didn't have cars, you didn't have machinery like today. Everything you did was inconsequently exercise. But for Timothy living in Ephesus in the Greco-Roman world, he would have been well familiar that the kind of exercise and training that Paul is talking about here is 
it's, it's focused exercise. It's discipline that has a purpose. Now, there's these Roman games and these Greco-Roman games in the Olympics. Go back thousands of years and people in Ephesus and Greece and Macedonia and Rome and Asia Minor would have trained year long for these, for, these, for these games, for these events to be crowned the victor. And so athletes who wanted to complete these games and compete in them, they had to be disciplined. They had to be disciplined in their diet and in their exercise. Again, this idea of diet, again, carries forward from verse 6 into the idea of being an athlete because, you know, if you want to be a good athlete, you need to eat well. You know, you can't just load up in sugar and run a marathon. You're going to crash. You're going to burn. You're not going to, you know, allow him to work. He's ran a marathon yesterday on nothing but sugar. Like, he spent the week eating sugar and snacks. I don't even know if he's alive. I haven't messaged him to see if he finished the race or not. But, you know, you need nourishment if you're going to exercise and train well. And so Paul tells them, you know, in verse 7, to avoid these irreverent city myths, or some translations say old wives' tales. Now, what these irreverent city myths that Timothy is avoid are, are the things like the endless genealogies and the myths that we learn about in chapter 1. I think of them as, you know, Christian conspiracy theories. You know what those are? You know, these documentaries where it's teaching the Bible without actually teaching the Bible, if you get what I mean. It's everything what you think the Bible says, but nothing what the Bible actually says. You know, you can go to Tesco, you can buy a six-part documentary on the Bible and not learn a thing about the Bible. You know, you can go onto YouTube and see any kind of wacko who, you know, thinks that Jesus is coming back tomorrow and will try to prove X, Y, and Z, and it'll be of absolute no benefit to you. Timothy, Paul says Timothy is to avoid silly, irreverent myths because they will not nourish him in his faith. They will not build him up. And so you have a contrast between this, you know, spiritual junk food, which isn't good for you, and a nourishing word of God. Again, you can't just pick out in junk food and expect to run a race. You're going to fail. Again, you might, you know, where, I guess the question is, where are you being fed from? You know, do you, you read the word of God? Do you partake in the bread of life? Or do you get all your knowledge about Jesus and God and the Bible from things like YouTube and false teachers and secular documentaries that try to push a worldview that isn't true? You know, if that is what you're doing, you might be able to write a really good Facebook post and get lots of likes and a few shares, but you're not actually going to be pursuing godliness. You're not going to be training for godliness. You will not obtain it. And you won't be Christ-like. You need the nourishing, life-giving bread that comes from the Word of God. And so Timothy, Paul's kind of saying to Timothy, you are what you eat. You know, if you're consuming the Word of God, you will become godly. If you are not consuming the Word of God, you will not be godly. So Timothy is to watch his diet and he's to train for godliness, Paul says. We ask, why does he need to train for godliness? Why is this so important? We see in verse 8, Paul says, For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of every value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And so godliness, it says, is of value in every way. Godliness. What is godliness? Godliness comes in the English word, the idea of being godlike. It's an old English word for being godlike, for being like God. Here in the Greek, it's the word eusebia, and it basically means reverence or respect. It's that kind of, you know, kind of 
respect you'd have for your father or your mother. You know, you love them, but there's a certain kind of awe and respect about them. It's this kind of mixture, this mingling of love and fear that we should have towards God. And so to be godly simply means to be God-fearing. It means to be a God-fearing person. If you want to be godly, if you want to be like Christ, then you have to be a God-fearing person, Scripture would say. And to practically be like that, it means you have to set the Lord before you in all things. To fear God means you put him before the opinions of man. To fear God means you fear so much what he thinks, you don't care what anyone else really thinks in comparison. That your desire is to please him above everyone else. That he is number one in your life. That you are focused on the things of God and the wills of God and the desires of God in this world. And so really you can say, if you are a person who fears God, you are a person who God you know, encompasses and is centered in your life. And so Timothy is a train for godliness because it holds these promises for this life and the life to come, it says. So how do you train for godliness? You know, how do you practically train for, to be like God? That's a funny image. How do you train physically to be like God? You know, I was thinking, I wonder if there's many books like that. You know, is there a 12-week program of training and exercises you have to do to be like Jesus? You know, is there somewhere in the world... Christian gyms where they give you like you know three sets of prayers and you know two reps of devotion and a few jumping jacks and that's just you know how do you practically be like God? How do you train for godliness? He doesn't go into great details. The text doesn't actually specifically say, but the context, especially the idea of nourishment and exercise, suggests that godliness and training for godliness comes by the word of God. Again, it always points back to God's words. Being disciplined in your reading. You know, actually taking the time to focus on the word of God, to meditate on the word, to pray through the word, to live out the word, again, to be a doer of the word, not a hearer, is crucial for growth and godliness. You know, the amount of effort and the amount of devotion you put into the word of God will come back in your life because this is a book you know, we sometimes forget, because we have so many Bibles and so much access to the Word of God, this is a book written by God, about God, and God has given us this book. We've been given, essentially, the autobiography of God. And the more you read this book, the more you devote yourself to the study of this book, the more God will penetrate you. The more he will penetrate your heart and make you like him. The more you see God and see yourself, the more you have a desire to be like God and for him to change you into his image. You know, we are to be fed from this book. We are to drink this book. This book needs to be the air we breathe. It can't be, there can't be any other substitutes. You know, I, I love what John Piper says. He says, we have a cavern in us that is waiting to be filled by the life-giving water that comes through the word of God. There is a cavern in us waiting to be filled. We are like dry sponges that need to be you know, absorbing all this water. And that's our heart. That's how God has designed us to be so dependent on his word. And so we need to train ourselves in godliness. We need to because it is of eternal value, Paul says. You know, physical training has some value in it. Again, you know, if you want to run a marathon, you have to start training. If you decide one morning, I'm going to wake up and run a marathon, you might be able to do it if you're generally fit, but you're probably going to damage yourself. 
Maybe do more bad to you than good. You know, having a, 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 you know, a knee out of place isn't really worth the pride of running 26 miles at the end of the day, you know? So, training has physical value. Eating right has physical value, it does. But the problem with it is it runs out. All that value runs out. You can be eating your whole life well, you can be exercising your whole life well, and you should to the glory of God, but one day you will die. We live in bodies of death, and one day we will die. And if you're a person who has been trying to, you know, I've seen this picture on Facebook, it's like this gravestone with the words on it, I ate all that kale for nothing. And I love that. I ate all that kale for nothing. And it's because though there is value in nutritious good food, its value runs out when you die. It's of temporal use. But not so with godliness, Paul says. Paul says that the value of godliness never runs out. That it holds promises in this life and the life to come. That it is of eternal value and it prepares us for eternity with Jesus Christ. Godliness allows you to live a content satisfied life now and it prepares you for life of Christ in the future it is the only thing that will guarantee life to come because sin never guarantees life to come no sin will never fulfill you we lie to ourselves we think it will but it never does it never leaves you content it never promises eternal life sin will always leave you empty it will always lead to death now, only a godly, Christ-like life will bring true satisfaction now and in the future. Nothing compares to knowing Jesus Christ. No sin, no evil will ever satisfy your soul. What your soul wants is Jesus. And so Paul tells us that this saying, this saying in verse 9, is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And it's true, Paul's saying. It's all true. Sin, rebellion, silly myths, none of it will benefit you in the end. None of it will satisfy you, and none of it will give you life. You know, you might be feeling empty this morning. You know, there's times in my Christian life where I just feel empty and dried up and barren. And you know why it is? It's because we play with sin. And you know, maybe you've been playing with sin for far too long, and it's left you feeling empty. You know, you're dry. You've no satisfaction. You're not content. You're running from one thing to the next because you don't know how to be satisfied by true living water. We need to turn to Christ. We need to turn to the one who will bring true life and bring tr brings true satisfaction. We need to learn to abide in him and drink the water that he offers us. I love in John chapter 4, where Jesus talks to the woman in Samaria, and they're having this dialogue about water. And Jesus says that the water, you know, he says, I'll read it to you in John chapter 4. Everyone who drinks of this water, he's talking about physical water, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus offers us that water. He offers us true satisfaction that we cannot find anywhere else. And so because of that, because of that truth, because of the fact that Jesus is the one who satisfies, Paul says, to this end, we toil and strive. Because we have our hope set on the living God. So Paul tells us he does this. 
Paul toils and strives. Paul disciplines himself. He too has to feed on the word of God and train for godliness. You often think of the apostles as these super saints and these super men who are unlike us. But Paul, the great apostle, was no exception to the Christian norm. He had to abide in Christ and feed on the word of God. And he says he does it because his hope is set on the living God and the Savior. See, Paul trusted in the promises of God. Paul trusted in the sufficiency of Christ's death. Paul learned to abide in Christ. Paul knew that the only hope of eternal life he had was in the hope he had in the living God. There was no hope outside of that. And so Paul knew that it was true to risen Jesus. And because of the risen Jesus, that he would press on. That he would train for godliness. And he would instruct others as well. Because again, in Paul's mind, and rightfully so, God is the only thing we can start our hope on. Everything else will let you down. I know that from personal experience, nothing will give you hope like Jesus does. You know, it's said by him, my help is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Paul lived that out. He leaned wholly on Jesus' name. He trusted in his Savior. He trusted in the only one that could save and that's why Paul calls God here the savior of all people. Especially of those who believe, he says. God is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. What does Paul mean there? Especially of those who believe. But he's the savior of all people. Now, in what sense, we have to ask, is God the savior of everybody, but especially of those who believe? Now, there are some people who will try and tell you that this encourages universalism. The concept and idea that everyone will be saved, that no one will be damned, that everyone will enter into eternal life, but that some people will be especially saved. Some people will be saved more than others and receive a greater level of blessing. And I've actually had a lot of conversations with people about this. When I was living um, in Bally Bag a few years ago, I was living with a Mormon. And his elders would come over all the time. But we had discussions, and time and time again, they would try and convince me that there is no such thing as hell. That there is no consequence for sin. That there is no eternal separation from God and that everyone will be saved. But those who followed the Mormon doctrines receive a greater blessing. And I simply told them, no thank you. Because I mean, if I'm going to be saved without believing, why would I believe in the first place? Now, why would I restrict myself to a life of rules and religion if I'm going to go to heaven as it is? doesn't make any sense. I told him, no, there is hell, and if you don't accept the penalty Christ pays, you have to pay it yourself. So we either trust in our own merit or trust in the merit of Christ. And so Paul is clearly, he's not teaching universalism. The Bible does not teach that everyone will be saved. It teaches that God desires all to be saved. We know that's the heart of God. We have a God who loves us and desires us world to be saved. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter 9 says, God is not slow to fulfill his promises, but he's patient towards us, because he doesn't wish that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that gave his own begotten son. God loved fallen humanity so much that he gave his own son. And so God desires all to be saved, but the reality is the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. It says in Second Peter. And when that day comes, it will be too late. And that's why today is the day to place your faith in Jesus. You, know, you aren't guaranteed tomorrow. And that's the truth of it. 
So again, we ask, in what sense is God the Savior of all people, especially those who believe? If you look at the logical flow in the teaching in the Bible, that all people here has to be the church. It can't be anyone else. It has to be the church, especially those who believe. Who, will it, who is it in the Bible who is saved? It's those who believe in Jesus, right? It's those who trust in Jesus. Jesus says in Mark 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. John 1.12, but to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. If you confess to your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, it says in Romans 10. So belief is the condition you must fulfill to be saved. If you believe, you're saved. If you don't believe, you're not saved. God makes it so so simple for us. And so because of this clear teaching in the Bible, that if you believe, you will be saved, and if you don't believe, you will not be saved, many commentators, scholars, translators, pastors agree that this word, especially in the Greek, can and should be better translated, Paul's saying, to be precise, or in other words, to those who believe. Again, the question is, do you believe? If you do, then you are saved, and God is your saviour. That's wonderful. You can abide in him. You can find rest in him. You can pursue him and love him if you believe. So Paul says, command and teach these things. Command and teach these things. People need to know. People need to know. The gospel needs to be proclaimed. So with that, Paul, he's been talking about the integrity of Timothy's teaching. Again, of his his, you know, his doctrine, what he believes and what he teaches to be the truth. In the last um, few verses this morning, he goes from the integrity of his teaching to the integrity of his life. Paul says in verse 12, Let no one despise you for your youth. Let no one despise you for your youth. And that's kind of drastic. A bit of a dramatic contrast to verse 11. Because in verse 11, Paul tells everyone, teach and command these things. You know, Timothy had a high calling. He was to pastor these people. He was in a position of leadership. And he was to speak on the authority of the Apostle Paul. And yet, he says here in verse 12, that there might be a stumbling block to this calling. That there might be a potential hindrance to him preaching the gospel and preaching the truth. And that hindrance is his age. Because Timothy was a young man. He wasn't as well seasoned in years as other members of the church. And so by describing his youth here, and the word used for youth, it describes in the Greek a person from their mid-twenties all the way up to their thirties and forties, up to their like, you know, late thirties. And so Timothy was considered a young man, and because of this people believe he was in his thirties to mid-thirties when this book was written, and that was a young man, that was a youth. That by that standard, roots are in crash at the moment, you know? And I'm somewhere in between. I'm a tween, you know. Um, by those standards, that makes anyone under 30 a bit of a kid, to be honest, you know. And so Timothy was in a position of church leadership beyond his years. It was beyond his years. It wasn't a natural thing. And because of this, there was a potential that his ministry and the words that he would share from Paul would be rejected by people in the church. And why would they reject them? Many possible reasons. You can speculate all day. Maybe they're jealous. You know, 
maybe they're in the church long before Timothy was. And here's this young guy in his 30s comes in, takes over, and maybe they felt that should have been me. You know, maybe they felt he was just too young for the job. Maybe it was just that he was just young. You know, John Stott calls this a perennial problem, the problem of the age gap. You know, when older people look at younger people and see them as immature, and most of the time they're right, and younger people look up to the older generation with contempt because they're constantly being reminded of how immature they are. And so there's this potential rejection of Timothy's calling in ministry because of his youth. And so we ask, how should Timothy react to being rejected and potentially despised because he was born at the wrong time? There's a danger. There's a danger for anyone in the position of leadership, especially those who are young, you know, either young into the position or young in general or both, to react in a way that is wrong and sinful. You know, there's a danger to get boastful, saying, well, I am in charge, you're not. You know, there's a danger of being arrogant, I know more than you, so I'm the one in charge. There's a danger of getting aggressive, saying, shut up, this is the will of God. There's a danger of wanting to throw your weight around and force people to accept you by being a bully. That's wrong, isn't it? That is not good leadership. That is not what Christ calls a leader to be like. That's a bad leader. I mean, could you imagine what happened in this church? I'll use myself as an example. You know, I know I'm old, but... <laughs> you know, I obviously, along with pastoring, I lead the community groups in this church. And the two men who lead the groups for me are both older than me. You got Demeter and Albert. Not by a lot, but they're both, you know, older than me. And could you imagine... One day they get annoyed at me over something or they decide to reject some idea I want for a community group for whatever reason, you know, because of my youth. You know, maybe they don't agree with the idea and they reject it. Maybe they think it's an immature decision. And they say, no, Danny, you're wrong. We're not going to do this. What happens if I fly off the handle, start Bible bashing them, you know, and <laughs> I try to throw my weight around and bully them into submission? What happens? Well, I'd probably get beat up because they're stronger than me as it is, you know. They're bigger guys than me. But the reality is, all I've done is I've proven them right. You know? All that happened is that I've proven that they're right. That because of my youth, I shouldn't be in the position of authority. I would have been because out for it. All because I chose to react in a godless, carnal way. So in any leadership position, whether you're a pastor, a deacon, a husband, a wife, a parent teacher whatever it is if your leadership is challenged you need to be a brute to get your way and you're proving you're not cut out to leave because no one is following you when i was in bible college in germany the man who was discipling me once told me because i told him i felt a desire to leave he said make sure you're leading people i was like what do you mean he said that if you're a person if a person thinks they're leading people and no one is following they're simply taking a walk <laughs> that went true right if you're leading and you're taking everyone's following, you're looking the opposite way, you're just taking a walk into the middle of the woods by yourself. That's not what a leader is. So how should Timothy react if people despise his youth? Paul tells him that he is to prove he is a leader by his life. And with that, Paul gives Timothy six ways in which he can commend his ministry and be accepted for it. And we're going to go through five of them this morning, um, quickly enough now. So... The first is that he must be an example. 
Paul says, you know, don't let anyone despise you for youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. And so Timothy was to be an example to the church. Being an example is something Paul was very concerned about. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, imitate me because I imitate Christ. That's a very bold statement, you know. Be like me because I'm being like Jesus. But Paul wanted Timothy to be able to say the same. You know, if people looked up to him because of the way he lived, then how could they despise him for his youth? And so he was to be an example to the flock. He was to model that servant leadership that Jesus spoke about in the Gospels, that to be the greatest, you have to be the least. You know, to be exalted, you have to humble yourself. To be a leader, you must wash feet. And so Paul says that Timothy was to be an example in a few things, in speech, and basically the things he said to people, in his conduct, the way he lived his life, in his love, love for God and love for God's people, in faith, that is his faith in God and his faithfulness to Christ, and in purity and his ability to be self-controlled. And if he could do these things, he would prove to be an example and a leader. The second thing he tells him to do is to find where his authority is truly at where his authority comes from. He says it in verse 13, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. So Timothy had to know where his authority ultimately came from. And it came from two places. On an earthly perspective and plane, it came from Paul, right? Paul commissioned Timothy to speak on his behalf and Paul gave him the authority to teach. But he couldn't just teach whatever he wanted. He had to teach the words of Paul, what Paul told him to teach. So in one sense, his authority came from Paul, but on a different sense, on a heavenly perspective, his authority came from the scriptures, came from the word of God, from the apostles' words and from the Old Testament. And that's why Paul tells Timothy to devote himself to the public reading of scripture and then to exhortation and teaching, because in the public reading of scripture, Timothy, Timothy could claim authority. You know, whatever authority he had, whatever exhortation or teaching he was to give had to be according to God's words. You know, as a pastor, the only authority I have comes from the Bible. It doesn't come from man. It doesn't come from a different church. It comes from the Bible. And for both Tyrone and myself, we need to ensure we're placing ourselves under the authority of Scripture. Sola Scriptura, you know, only by Scripture. We don't make the rules. I don't make the rules. God does. And you, as the, you know, God's people, you should only follow a leader as far as they are following the Word of God. You know, if I'm telling you something that's in clear contradiction to the clear teaching of the Word of God, you shouldn't listen to me. You know, I'm not going to listen to you if you start telling me things about Christianity that's contrary to the Word of God, because we need to obey God, not man. You know, that's why we have Bibles in this church, so you can read the Bible for yourself and you can see whether it's true or not. So you can discern and hear if what we preach from this pulpit is consistent with the Word of God. You often wonder, what's the difference between a cult leader and a faithful preacher on a Sunday morning? What's the difference? You don't read this, you can't read no. If you don't know the Word of God, how do you know what's the truth? And so Timothy was to receive his authority from and submit to the authority of Scripture. Now, the next thing he tells him to commend his ministry is to exercise his gift. Verse 14 says, Do not neglect the gift you have, 
which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So Paul tells him not to neglect this certain gift he had. Timothy was gifted by God. <coughs> what it is, it doesn't say. You know, this gift could have been his ability to teach. It could have been his ability to lead. It could have been the office of pastoring. We can't say to be sure, but whatever it is, we do know that Timothy was instructed not to neglect it. We get the idea that you know, God gifts us, but we can either build upon that gift, or we can let that gift be neglected and go to waste. And so with that, Paul makes three remarks. The first thing he says is that it's actually a gift. It is, this gift Timothy had wasn't something that came naturally from himself. Whether it was the teacher lead, it didn't come from himself. Remember, Timothy was a bit of a coward. Right? He was a timid person. He was fearful. It's hard to lead when you're a coward and you fear. So maybe it was that. Maybe that gift came from God. Maybe the ability to proclaim the word of God came from that gift from God. It was the gift from God, Paul says in 2 Timothy 1. The reality is God bestows spiritual gifts upon his church. We see examples of these gifts in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about, you know, Wisdom and knowledge and prophecy, spiritual discernment, miracles, healing, tongues, the interpretation of tongues. Roman 12 talks about teaching and encouragement and mercy. You see in the scriptures, you know, the giftings of offices in the church. So God, through the Holy Spirit, gifts his people to serve him. And Timothy was no exception. And you are no exception. We have been gifted from God to serve God. The second thing Paul says is that this gift was given to him through some kind of prophetic message. Now, it's not really clear what the actual circumstances were, but what we know is that the Holy Spirit, you know, proclaimed that Timothy had this gift and calling through a member of the church. And so this, this, this gifting Timothy had was confirmed by prophecy through the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, this gift was recognized by the church when they laid hands on him. If you're a Christian and you have been gifted to serve God, none of you are, are exempt from that. Everyone who is a Christian is called to serve the living God. And simply put, you know, to confirm the ministry that God has given you, to confirm the calling in your life, you must not neglect it, Paul says. Just like he tells Timothy. We have two more things. The fourth thing Paul tells Timothy is he needs to progress. The mark of a true Christian, one of them is progression. It's moving forward. He says, practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. And so a Christian should always be moving forward in their faith, right? There needs to be growth. You know, people should be able to see you, not just for who you are, but for who you will be in Christ. You know, it's, it's kind of a sad thing when you see someone who's been following for Christ for 5, 10, 20 years, and are no different from when they first got saved. That there's no progression, there's no moving forward in Christ. Because how do we progress? How do we move forward? How do we bear fruits? Paul says by immersing yourselves in the things which God has called you to do. You know, for Timothy, he was to be an example. He was to teach and he was to you know, use his gifting. He was to commit himself to following God and whatever God had committed him to do. He was to abide in God's will and not go away from it. He was to abide in Christ. And that's what the scriptures tell us to do to bear fruits. Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And so we need to abide in Jesus, right? We need to abide in Christ. If you're not growing, it's because you're not abiding. 
if you're not growing, it's because you've chosen to find rest and satisfaction in something else than the one true source of life. Again, only Jesus can satisfy. Only Jesus can quench thirst. Only he can make you bear fruit. I, can, I don't think I can say it enough. Only Jesus will make you progress. So finally, Timothy has paused one last exhortation to Timothy in this text this morning. He tells him that in his life, to commend his ministry, he needs to be consistent. He can't fall away. Verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So again, Timothy was to watch his doctrine and his living. You know, there couldn't be any kind of variation in the way he lived his life. There couldn't be any kind of variation in his, in his teaching. You couldn't go from, you know, off the walls to sound in his doctrine. He couldn't go off the walls in life and then back to a consistent, godly life. He needed to be consistent in both these areas. He needed to watch his own character and ensure that he was growing close to God. And he had to watch his teaching so that he was not leading people away from God. And there has to be a balance in that in our lives. Our devotional life and our life of, you know, our physical life and ministry. You know, we can't so, get so wrapped up in the Lord's word that we forget about the Lord. That's really easy to do that. You know, God gives you work and great things are happening. And you get so obsessed with the work, you forget to be obsessed with Jesus. Or likewise, it can't happen. You get so focused on sitting at Jesus' feet when he tells you to go. You don't go because you're afraid. And you don't do the work he has called you to do. You, know, you can be, spend too much time being a Mary or a Martha to use that kind of analogy from Scripture. We need to be consistent. And Paul says it's important to be consistent in your life. Because if we are faithful in these areas, salvation will come, he says. Paul says that he would save himself and his hearers. You know, Timothy would prove his salvation by his personal devotion and his perseverance to the end. And if he was a faithful example in following Christ, they would be saved too, because they would want Christ. And so it all boils down to those things. Watching your teaching and watching your life. Being an example, you know, teaching the word, using that gift, progressing in the faith, keeping watch over your soul and caring for God's people. This is the example that Paul sets before Timothy and this is the example that God sets before us. Whether you're a leader in the church or not, we are to be examples. We are to lead people to Jesus by the way we live our lives and the things we say about him. And so that's our calling. That calling can only come from one place because if you try that in your own merits, you will fail. If you try that in your own strength, you will fail. If you try to follow examples of man, you will fail. As much as Timothy was to have people follow him as an example, as much as Timothy was to follow Paul as an example, there was only one true example to follow. Jesus Christ. And again, it all boils down to Jesus. Paul could only say, imitate me, because he imitated Christ. So guys, we need to imitate the only one who is worthy of imitating. Jesus. He is the perfect example. He is the perfect teacher. He is the one who is perfectly submitted to the word of God. He is the one who is perfectly consistent, who is perfect in his devotional life, who is perfect in the, the calling of God to save. He is the only one who progressed faithfully to the end and went to the cross. He is the one who never changes. He is the consistent one. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, the scripture says. And he is the one that we should imitate. Jesus is the one we should exalt this morning. 
He is the one you need to abide in. And he's the one, you know, when you walk out that door, do you need to follow? Not me, not Tyrone, not a man, Jesus. And we need the Holy Spirit's help for that. So, you know, as the worship team comes up, let's pray. Let's pray for that. Let's pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon us to live that life of following after Christ. Let's, you know, pray that he, you know, as they said earlier, we stirred up with a love for Jesus, stirred up with an admiration for Jesus, stirred up with a passion that can only be satisfied in Jesus. Father, we thank you, Lord. You have given us the perfect example, God. Jesus, there is no one like you, God, and that's true. There is absolutely no one like you, Jesus. No one worth following, no one worth you know, modeling our life after, no one worth worshiping Jesus by you. God, forgive us if we look to, to, to worship and follow man instead of following you, God. Forgive us, Lord, if we try to exalt ourselves instead of exalting you, Jesus, Lord. Forgive us if we're setting an example of anything else by you, Christ. And so, Lord, we pray, Jesus, you would be our example and you would be our strength in that, Lord. God, we are weak, but you are strong. Holy Spirit, we invite you, Lord. We know you are in us. We are sealed at you as Christians. But we pray you have come upon us to equip us and to empower us, God, to follow you, Jesus, to be like you, Jesus, to love you more, Jesus. We need you, Jesus. And so, Lord, would you just stir our hearts up to worship, to proclaim your name, Jesus, and to be changed by you, Lord, as we look to you. God, we love you so much. We pray you would move in our midst, Lord Jesus. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who has not accepted you, Jesus, who has accepted anything else, bar you for that satisfaction and that hope in life. Holy Spirit, please just change our hearts towards you, God, and just save them, Lord, by your grace. God, we commit our lives to you, God, afresh. We commit our walk to you, Jesus. And we pray you would have your way in us. In your name we pray. Amen.